If uh, we haven't met, my name is uh, Tom uh, Darnell. Uh, I'm uh, a minister uh, in our denomination, mostly retired, but uh, 10 hours a week, I'm the pastor of spiritual formation for our region of churches called the Nashville Presbytery. And I know that probably means absolutely nothing to anyone about what that means. So let me tell you, uh, my job is basically to kind of keep in touch and follow uh, the pastors in our presbytery, uh, minister with them and to them as much as I'm able and as much as they need and to be a resource to their churches. So there are about 80 of those other pastors in our presbytery, so there are a lot of guys uh, to keep track of. That's what I do 10 hours a week. It is great to be back with you. Love your new space, by the way. Isn't this great? Love your new space. I'm so glad for you that you finally have a space like this, so I'm delighted to be with you today. I want to begin just by talking about a well-known study many years ago uh, done by Princeton Seminary, uh, which involved 40 of their students. Uh, and these students had no idea they were being a part of a psychological study. So these 40 students were told uh, that they had to give an extemporaneous talk on one of two topics, and they were assigned which topic they had to talk about. One of those groups, the first group, had to talk about the possible careers uh, that a degree uh, and a seminary could afford them upon graduation. And the second group uh, had to give uh, a talk on uh, the Good Samaritan parable that you heard uh, just read by Rob. Then what they did with these two groups, they further divide each of the two groups into three other groups. So there were six groups total. So each group had uh, three other subset groups. And here's what they, each of those groups were told. One group was told that they were already late uh, and they had to rush to the assigned building to give their talk. The second subgroup was told uh, that you need to hurry a little bit to get to the next building where you've been assigned to speak. And then the third group was told, uh, you have about three to five minutes to get to the building that you've been assigned to give your talk to. Those were the three subsets of each of the two groups. Now, all 40 people on their way to their building uh, where they had to give their talk had to pass through a hallway uh, where they placed an individual who looked like someone who was homeless. At the time that this study was being done, it was five degrees outside uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. It was winter. This individual was really not dressed for that kind of temperature at all. Uh, he looked forlorn. He had his head down. He was coughing. He looked like he was sick. So all 40 had to pass by this individual. So you can probably guess what the study was. Who's going to stop and give aid to this individual? So here's what they found out when they tabulated the results. There was a direct correlation between those who were in a hurry, who had little to no time to get to where they were going, and whether they stopped or not to help this individual. And basically, no one did. Some people did stop and talk to this individual. They offered no help, but when they got to the next building, they had other people that they talked to that they said should go help this guy. But hardly anybody else did. There was no correlation. There was no correlation uh, between the help that was offered by the few that did and their assigned topic. 
So the Good Samaritan group uh, and the group talking about theological education, there was no difference as to who in those groups stopped and offered any kind of help whatsoever. There was also uh, no correlation between the likelihood of people stopping to help these, this needy man and the nature of their religious commitment and maturity as Christians. No correlation whatsoever. So today, I'm sort of starting where a lot of sermons end, uh, and that's talking about thinking of what is applicable to you uh, in this parable that we're going to look at today. So you think about, as I go through and explaining this parable about yourselves and your response to the need that God providentially puts in your path, and think about what is going to be the greatest effect on you stopping to help such an individual. Is it your Christian maturity and your understanding of, and desire to apply what we're taught here in this parable of the Good Samaritan? Will that have the greatest impact as to whether you stop and help? Or will the greatest impact be on your unavailability to help because you're too busy? Think about those two questions. We're going to look at two things in this parable, very simply. We're going to review the parable, and then we're going to secondly look at learning the parable's lessons. Let me pray for all of us, and let's come to this passage and learn what we may. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this parable is in the scriptures. We're grateful that this event was recorded, Lord, by your disciples, that the church throughout the ages could stop and listen and learn what this parable might have for them. And so, Lord, whether we know this parable well or not well at all, we pray that you cause us in our own heart and soul to stop. Lord, that your word would be a mirror to us. It would show us who we really are. And it would have, Lord, a deep and significant impact in how we think of and take time to respond to the needy that you bring into our lives. So now, Lord, have your way with our hearts and affections. We pray a response to these words. You would be glorified as a result. In your name, amen. So let's review the parable story. Let's first of all talk about this half-dead man on the side of the road. Uh, we, we presume that this individual is probably a Jew uh, Jesus, when he says that he's going down to Jericho, that's exactly what he was doing very directly. It was the descent from Jerusalem to Jericho of about 3,300 feet. It was a long descent of about uh, 17 miles. So he was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So because this was a very rugged part of the terrain in that part of the world, there were a, lo a lot of places to hide uh, for those that were passing by. So if you were, were not in the safety of a caravan of several people, uh, it could be very likely there are people hiding, robbers, which they frequently did, to prey upon people who were not protected by a caravan. So like so many people before him, this individual was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was robbed, that he was stripped of his clothes, he was severely beaten and then he was left to lie along the road to die. That's the Jew who was attacked. 
Then let's look at the traveling neighbors. There were three neighbors that traveled by this man. Two were religious. One, at least we're not told that he is, is not. So what do we learn from them? What do we see in them? Well, first of all, we have the two religious men, the priest and the Levite. A lot of people would say that they, when they read this, are basically the same sort of person who served in the temple in Jerusalem. Their tasks were different, so they weren't the same. So the priests were mediators for the people, so they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would lead the people in confession of sin. They were priests. The Levites would assist the priests, so they would help in the sacrifices that were being offered. They had charge of a lot of menial tasks in the temple. They were in charge of worship and song in the temple. They served as doorkeepers, so they assisted the priests. Those two people passed by this man who was attacked and left for dead. So it was common in that time for priests and Levites to live like in Jericho, and uh, they would go to Jerusalem and serve several days. Uh, and then they'd make this 17-mile trek back to Jericho, and apparently that's what these men were doing. So both of these religious professionals had nothing to do uh, with this dying man on the side of the road. To such an extent, it said that they passed by on the other side. They got as far away as they could from this person that was dying along the side of the road. That was the priest, and that was the Levite who passed by. They represented one group of people. The Samaritan uh, was representative of another group of people. Let me tell you about the Samaritans. In 722 BC, the empire of the Assyrians swept down uh, from the north into the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom of Israel, called Israel, uh, and overcame them and took a lot of the residents uh, of that part of the Jewish kingdom captive back to Assyria. But some were left. So some of the people that they conquered were left and some of the Assyrians stayed. And they intermarried. So the Jewish residents intermarried with the Assyrian Gentiles. Uh, and they became, in light of the southern kingdom of the Jews called Judah, half-breeds. They, by marrying with these Assyrians, became non-Jews and were rejected by the Jews in the southern kingdom. They were a stench in the nostrils of the Jews to the south. That's who it was that came by this individual who was left for dead alongside of the road. So they were so uh, abused and so uh, not thought well of that even in this story we see uh, that in verse 37, when the uh, lawyer refers to the man along the side of the road and the person that comes by to help him, the person by the one who came, comes by to help him, he calls him the one. He doesn't call him, he doesn't call him the Samaritan, he calls him the one. He wouldn't even use the word Samaria or Samaritan because they were abhorrent to the, to the Jews. But we read in verse 33 that this Samaritan, this half-breed, this Jewish reject had compassion for the man alongside the road. This word compassion is used 12 times in the New Testament Nine of those times it refers to Jesus directly, that he had compassion. 
Three of the times, like in this story, where you use the people uh, in a story to describe that person in the story. So when we see a reference of it being used concerning Jesus, we find it in Matthew 9, 36, which says, as he looked at the vast crowds, he was deeply moved with pity for them. For they were as bewildered and miserable as a flock of sheep with no shepherd. So the word pity is used, but it's the same word, compassion, used here. And the word literally means to have one's bowels yearn. So what they mean by that is, should be obvious to us as we think about it, that when this Samaritan saw this man dying alongside of the road, his stomach turned with compassion toward this individual. And it took him toward the hurting man, the dying individual. Unlike the two religious people that their stomach turned from this man, they did not have compassion. They tried to resist and avoid and get away from this individual, but not the Samaritan. His bowels yearned to help, and he moves toward him to help him. So what did he do? He treated the dying man's wounds with wine to disinfect and oil and bandages. He then put him in his Honda Civic and brought him to the nearest Holiday Inn. And he left enough money that was equal to two days' wages to take care of him and then told the innkeeper at the Holiday Inn, when I come back, if there's more that I need to pay, let me know, I'll pay for it. That's what he did. So, what lessons can we learn? What are the lessons for us uh, in this parable? Let me give you just three. I'm sure there are more, but here are three. The first lesson is this. Loving neighbors won't use the technicality excuse. Loving neighbors won't use the technicality excuse. So don't forget the introduction of this parable. In verse 35, a lawyer asked what he needed to do to have eternal life. In verse 26, Jesus answers this individual by saying, what does the law say? In verse 27, the lawyer gives the correct answer and says, the law says, love God from Deuteronomy and love your neighbor, Leviticus, and Jesus says, you're right. That's what the law says. So Jesus affirms in verse 28 his answer. And then in verse 29, the lawyer says, then who is my neighbor? So what's going on here? Why does the lawyer do this? Why does he ask, who is my neighbor? Why does he get technical in defining neighbor? Well, I think if we were to stop and meditate on this some, we would probably conclude, like a lot of scholars have, that this man was so guilty, hearing the parable, that he couldn't offer that kind of help to a neighbor like that. So he wanted to kind of get into a technical discussion to avoid him feeling more guilty than he already feels about what it is that I need to understand about who my neighbor is. So Jesus doesn't answer how we can inherit eternal life. He doesn't answer that question. He doesn't get into a debate about the definition of neighbor. Jesus doesn't do that. He does lay the groundwork for the lawyer to need, the need for him to understand how lost he is. He wants to get him lost. He's not ready to be saved because he's not lost. He's self-righteous. So Jesus wanted to get him lost, that he saw the need for a savior in the sin that he had. And he does, Jesus does turn the emphasis 
of the conversation away from the technicality of defining neighbor to convincing the challenge of being neighborly. Not who is my neighbor, but how do I be neighborly? Let me expand that some. Jesus doesn't talk about what needy neighbor is to be shown compassion. He doesn't talk about that. Jesus does talk about how neighborly are you in showing compassion to needy people. Jesus doesn't talk about how sweeping is a phrase, my neighbor, how extensive is my neighborhood. But Jesus does talk about how sweeping your neighborliness should be. Jesus does not talk about whom should you love or not love. Jesus does talk about how are you loving to all people. He doesn't get caught up in the technicality of defined neighbor. He wants to define your neighborliness. Are you a good neighbor? That's what Jesus turned to. So loving neighbors won't use a technicality excuse. Next, loving neighbors won't use the superiority excuse. Religion often gets in the way, doesn't it, of us helping our neighbors, of being neighborly, doesn't it? I know it's a challenge for me. <laughs> it is a challenge for me. The spiritual giants, the priest and the Levite, passed by the dying man and avoided giving any help, but the merciful scumbag Samaritan stopped and met the dying man's needs. So the religious folks had a hang-up. They did not want to dirty themselves with this dirty person alongside of the road. So we always need to think about ourselves and ask the question, what part of our personal purity are we afraid of defiling if we get involved with the needy? What are you afraid of defiling? Is it maybe our own intellectual purity we're afraid of defiling? We can't stoop down that low. Is it perhaps that our class or social purity is going to get defiled? If I do that, I'm going to get down to their level. I don't live at their level. I'm not at their level. I'm not going to purify and jeopardize my purity by stooping that low. Maybe it's a racial purity. Maybe it exposes your own racism and you don't want to identify with that race of that needy person, so you do not do that. So we need to answer that question about what is it that I'm trying to remain pure for by avoiding the help to the needy that God puts in my life and path. And then third, loving neighbors won't use the costly excuse. They aren't the people that say helping the needy costs too much. So the Samaritan helped this individual, and he paid a great price to do so, didn't he? He didn't write a check to keep from paying the price of personal involvement, and he didn't offer personal involvement to avoid writing a check. He didn't do either one. Churches, by the way, are notorious for writing checks but not being personally involved. Write a check, send it, it's all clean, it's all pure, I don't get too dirty, uh, that's easy, I'll write a check. One commentator said this about this part of the parable. He says, 
Some will give money to buy themselves off from personal exertion. Others will give their personal exertion to save their money. But in the instance before us, both were given by the Good Samaritan. For what genuine neighbor love does, it will do thoroughly. It will get involved, it will give money, it will cost us. There's a cost. Loving neighbors won't use the costly excuse. Now, I want to take us back to where this parable uh, begins before it's told by Jesus and what this lawyer said about what they are to do if they're to inherit eternal life. We look at verses 27 and 28, and it says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I recently uh, read a book. I had a sabbatical from my pressury duties uh, last July through the end of the year of 2020. And during that time, uh, I read a book by a Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink. Don't expect you to know who Herman is, uh, but a lot of seminaries use uh, another book that he wrote called Reformed Dogmatics, but in this book, Reformed Ethics is about sanctification or Christian living. And in that book, he talks a lot about that verse, loving your neighbor, but loving God and loving your neighbor. And they're called, if you know from scripture, the two great commandments. What are the greatest commandments in all of scripture? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. They're the two greatest commandments. So Bavink talked a lot about a disciple as someone who lives like that. They love God and they love their neighbor. So I thought a lot about that in terms of what I think about a lot in my role uh, as the pastor of spiritual formation. How do I help people become better disciples of Christ, better followers of Christ? The question is, what is a disciple? If a disciple can't define disciple, how, are they, how can they possibly grow as well as they possibly could in being that disciple? And if the church doesn't define to the people that they pastor and as they lead and guide about what a disciple is, how does the church know they're making them? Because the last thing Jesus told the church to do was to make disciples of all nations. So how do you make one that you can't define what that one is? What is a disciple? So I'm always thinking, how do we kind of boil this down to the lowest common denominator so we can remember for ourselves and for those we minister to, what is a disciple? Well, Bob Bink helped me. Because I think the first thing we can say about a disciple, a disciple lives by loving. Loving who? loving God and loving my neighbor. Now, sometimes pastors are really great at loving God, and that's sometimes manifested by being able to theologically divide all kinds of truths into smaller components or explaining dogma or scripture or 
being biblically astute and so forth, which is wonderful. But oftentimes, we pastor types can excuse the way we love our neighbors uh, by the way we love God by understanding dogma or scripture or doctrine. And that often results in not loving our neighbors well, not loving our people well, not being a disciple that loves others like I love myself. I often say that when we're going to talk about people in the church who become pastors, that for us to examine uh, their maturity as a Christian, we shouldn't just hand them an exam to take about their knowledge. We should examine their relationships. Because our relationships always reveal our theology. If you know theology correctly and understand it thoroughly, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will be loved well. Because God is one who loves me well. And that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that I might have life. And that's what Jesus says here. Jesus says you've answered well. Do this and you will live. Where do we find life as a disciple? By loving well. Loving who? Loving God. Loving my neighbor. A disciple loves so that they can manifest what it is to be a disciple. A disciple lives by loving. Well, how do you love? What's the, what's the barrier in loving people well? Well, I found as I thought about what Bob Inc. had to say that the major barrier in loving other people well and loving people that are needy, loving people that are in pain, whether it be emotional or physical, the problem in loving them well is me. I'm, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. In, in relationships, there are only two problems, right? You and me. Just two problems. <laughs> so I find that in the call to love my neighbor well, I need to understand what Bob Inc. talked a lot about in his book that's applicable to this parable, that a disciple is someone who loves by dying. For me to love my neighbor well, I need to die to self. I need to die. And I need to understand that dying to something isn't dying to something outside me. It's dying to me inside myself. I need to die to me. I get in the way. Theologian pastor John Stott says, if we are following Jesus with a cross on our shoulder, there's only one place to which we are going, the place of crucifixion. Our cross, then, is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. It is instead the symbol of death to the self. So it's not outside you. It is in you. And I find that true for me. So this book really helped me to understand that in a way that I hadn't understood it quite before, that I'm the problem, that I need to die to me. That if I'm going to be a disciple who lives by loving and loves by dying, I won't understand what a disciple is. I won't live like one. It'll be hard to make disciples if I'm not one, right? Now, here's the encouraging thing. You might hear that and say, well, I, how, how do you, I can't do that. How do I do that? How do I love like that? How do I live by loving and love by dying? What has God done to enable us to do that? Well, that when he ascended, that he sent his spirit to occupy 
in the lives of believers is his very own presence within him by the Holy Spirit of God, that he indwells me, the Spirit of God, and he says, he told the church, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. A person whose faith is in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within that Christian. They have all resource and power that the resurrected Christ has given them to love and to die. He enables me to do that. A lot of you know the passage that says in Philippians 4.13, a very short verse, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You heard that one before? It's true, but I love the way the Amplified Version says this. Listen to this. It says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. That is, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. The resurrected Christ, by the Holy Spirit, indwells me, enables me to live by loving and to love by dying. That I might, to those that God providentially puts my life along the same path, can stop, can stop and give love and care for those who are needy. So how does that all happen? A lot of times that will not happen unless we have the thought and commitment to understand that I'll wake up each day and I am a servant. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. Is that my disposition, that I've come to be a servant? I'd like to close with this passage. Uh, actually, it's an article, I'll just read excerpts from it, called, I Don't Want to Be a Servant. Now, I may have read this to you before. If you've heard me preach before, I may have shared this before. Uh, but I find that every time I read this, it so ministers to me. The repetition helps me. It doesn't hinder me. I pray if you've heard it before, it will help you. So let me just read parts of this article. Jesus and Paul are always telling us that we are to be servants. And to me, that is always wrong true. So I've preached it a lot and even tried to practice it occasionally. But that was before I knew what it was like to be a servant. The essence of a servant is not existing. If you are a servant, you are to do all sorts of jobs without anyone having to notice that you exist. But I do want to exist. When I stuff 3,000 envelopes, I want somebody to say, Thank you. I want somebody to acknowledge my existence. Being a servant is not my idea of self-fulfillment. So the next time someone is looking for a servant, I'm going to be slow to volunteer. It's not that I'm lazy. It's that I think I, that life has to have a sizable place for fulfillment. But I, I fear that verses about taking up our cross outweigh those about taking good care of ourselves. Probably Jesus' idea was that I didn't need to take care of myself because other Christians are supposed to do that, and that's a great idea, but it doesn't work. I don't take care of myself, and nobody else will. Nobody took care of Jesus either. He put others ahead of himself, and look what happened to him. So much for servanthood. But still, I don't want to be a servant. 
I'd hate if it was my job not to exist, and I'm in no hurry to get crucified. But narcissism is none too attractive either. The need for self-fulfillment may be one of the great delusions of our age, one of our chief principalities and powers. Maybe, maybe we need to find a balance between self-fulfillment and servanthood. But Jesus never did. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the privilege of having to study this passage again to preach it. And Lord, I, I'm so grateful for that privilege. It's so revealed to me, Father, my own failure to be the servant that you called me to be, but it's encouraged me that I'm filled with the very Spirit of God, that I might love by living, and that I might, Lord, love by dying. So, Lord, I would pray for this body, that they would be known for a church that serves genuinely, effectively, humbly in Christ's name. And then by it, Christ be glorified, that you, Lord, have raised up servants in this place to be a ministering servant to those in East Nashville. In Jesus' name, amen.